A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide. You're together with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode in honor of the yard site of Reb Leib Malin is sponsored by 20 Minute Duff. 20 Minute Duff is a Duff Yemishir led by Reb Shol Greenwald, where you actually feel the geschmack of the limud as you go through the Duff together. In just a little over 20 minutes, you'll get a clear and thorough explanation of the sugya without wasting time on extras. Listen to 20-Minute Daf on all podcast platforms, on WhatsApp, or at 20minutedaf.com. It's actually two years, basically, to the day of starting the Daf Yemi cycle, so we're celebrating two years of doing Daf Yemi, and uh, I personally am still doing it, going strong at it, and one of the reasons is because you have... 20-minute daf, and it just keeps you motivated, it keeps you going, knowing that you have this very clear and concise and, you know, great shear that I highly recommend and personally get much benefit out of, and, uh, you know, just, it keeps 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 you going with the daf yemi. it's a long, long cycle, and you want to get to the finish line, you have to have a good shear uh, that you're committed to, so the 20-minute daf is definitely very convenient, very clear, and uh, highly recommended. So we'll move along to the episode of today uh, about Rebleiv Malin. Um, a couple of months ago, for the Sukkis edition of the Mishpacha magazine, Davi Safir uh, and I had the privilege of writing a very, I would say, you know, groundbreaking article or landmark article about Rebleib Malin, who nothing's really been, nothing comprehensive has really been written about, especially in English. And this generated a lot of feedback and a lot of interest in doing an episode about him on the on the podcast. The original article is, of course, uh, available on Mishpacha Magazine's website. And if you haven't read it yet, then I highly recommend you do so, as well as our weekly column for the record in the Mishpacha Magazine of Davi and I. So this episode about Rebleib Malin is not exactly based on the article. There is a lot from the article, but it's really much, much more. A lot that was, you know, left on the cutting floor because of space considerations. I personally was always fascinated by Rebleib, so it's not really a summary of the article at all. It's really an exploration behind the scenes. You know, you ever see those those little uh, YouTube videos interviewing uh, Spielberg about, you know, what went on behind the scenes to create uh, one of his movies. So this is the same idea. <clears throat> Plus, many additional, Lahavdil, of course, 
um, uh, many plus many additional anecdotes and tidbits which didn't make it into the actual article due to space considerations. And I'm going to try to also give a much more broad retrospective analysis of of him in 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 his place in Jewish history of his time period. It's also a special yard site. It's yard site number sixty, if I calculated correctly. So it's a landmark yard site. It's the sixtieth yard site today of Rebbe Malin. Um, coming off of a recent trip, actually, before we get down to business, um, really a fantastic trip, a shul from Los Angeles, a wonderful group, really had a lot of fun, there was great singing and great discussions, we started off with Reb Shaila of Karastir, we went on to the Chassam Seifer in Slovakia, went to, to Nicholsburg in, in the Czech Republic, to the Shach in Holoshov, then we went on to Poland, where we did Krakow, Auschwitz, Lezhensk, Lublin, Ger, Warsaw, and many other exciting places exploring Jewish history. So we had a lot of fun. Um, and if you're one of those rare shuls that hasn't done a trip yet, then you might want to be in touch with me to organize one because everyone is doing it, and it's really, really a transformative experience and very exciting. So... We're going to go move on to Rebleib Malin, and as with most people of his time and place, his life was woven from a tapestry of three distinct narratives, and that is pre-war, during the war, and post-war. Those are the three chapters of Rebleib Malin's life, and all of them were very exciting. So first, we'll delve a bit into his family background, um, his Great-grandfather was Reb Isri Yehuda Malin, who was a rabbi in, in, in Brisk, and he had a son, Reb Yosef Shraga Malin, also a, a Dayan in Brisk, and he had several children. His oldest son was a Reb Moshe Malin, who was a Dayan in Bialystok. And it was his son that was Reb Leib Malin. So Reb Leib was born to his father, Reb Moshe, in Bialystok in Poland. Um, I believe that Reb Leib had an older brother, also named Reb Yehuda, who was a, a name for the for this great grandfather, and he was a close student of Rabbi Rucham Levavitz in the mirror as well. And I believe his notes were used by um, Reb Simchazisa Levavitz, Rabbi Rucham's son, when he went to publish Rabbi Rucham's uh, works as Shmuzin, um, like he used Reb Leib's notes. He used the Malin brothers' notes essentially. Uh, I think he left the yeshiva. Uh, the Mir, several years prior to the war, and he was killed in the Holocaust, according to my understanding of it. It could be a mixing up the relatives here, because there were several Isser Yehudas. For instance, Rebleib's uncle was another Isser Yehuda. Um, this um, he, he, this uh, Reb Yosef Shraga, the grandfather, had another son, Reb Isser Yehuda Mal, and he was a dying and brisk on the same rabbinical court as Reb Simchazelig Rieger. And he was very close with the Briskarov, Rebrelvola Soloveitchik, who later on would become the Rebbe of Rebleib Malin. So this Rebbe Yehuda Malin, he and most of his family were killed during the Holocaust. Um, the, the, and he's also named for the grandfather, the original, the patriarch of the family, this Rebbe Yehuda uh, Malin. It seems, interestingly enough, that Rebbe Yehuda Unterman, who was the chief rabbi in Israel, was, who was born in Brisk, and he may have been related somehow to the Malin family, it's unclear. He was also named for this original 
Rabbisar Yehuda Malin. So there's all these Rabbisar Yehudas running around. Um, this uh, Rabbisar Yehuda Malin, who was killed, had two sons, Nehemiah and Meir, and they did survive. At the war's outset, he sent them to escape with the Mir Yeshiva under the care of their first cousin, Rabbisar Malin. Rabbisar Malin was much older than his younger cousins, and these boys were in their teens. And Nehemiah and Meir stayed with the Mir through Shanghai and on to the United States. In the United States, they founded a yeshiva in Washington, D.C., of all places, which they named for their father. Uh, after, after their father, Mr. Yehuda, they also claimed that it was a continuation of the pre-war yeshiva in Brisk, which their father had, had been in charge of, and this was, presumably was to be able to make it easier to obtain funding from the German Claims Conference as a, you know, as a result of the fact that it was a yeshiva that had been destroyed by the Nazis. Rabbi Nechemia and Rabbi Meir Malin moved to Israel in the late 1970s, and Rabbi Nechemia Malin goes on to found a yeshiva called Knesset Yehuda, named for his father in the Sanhedrin Muchevet neighborhood in, uh, in Yerushalayim. It was a yeshiva, then later it was a kailal, later a cheder for younger children. It still exists as far as I know. Rabbi Nechemia Malin passed away in 2013. He was about 94 years old, so... These close relatives of Rabelais were still around till recently. Um, either way, so if we, that's that's the background of um, of Rabelais Malin. Um, he himself, you know, he studies in the Grudny Yeshiva, Shimon Shkup, and he his primary uh, rise to prominence was in the Mir Yeshiva. He was very close relation. He had a very close relation with Rabbi Yerucham Levavitz, the great Mashkiach of the Mir. It was really Rabbi Rucham and his close students who had the administrative role in running the yeshiva, both uh, the day-to-day running the yeshiva, and also they were the the ones who gave, delivered the chaburas, the, the, kind of like the informal classes, the shiurim of the yeshiva. Um, so Rabbi was very prominent in that circle of the close students of Rabbi Rucham. And the void that was left following Rabbi Rucham's passing in the summer of 1936 was very great, and therefore it was it was unclear who would fill this these these this gaping void, and it wasn't it wasn't an easy succession. Many thought there could be no successor to Rabbi Rucham, and it was a whole complication. Rabbi Finkel, who was the Rosh Hashiva, thought that perhaps his son, who was then living in Tel Aviv, Rabbi Chaim Zev Finkel, could succeed. Rabbi Rucham, the close students of Rabbi Rucham weren't excited about that idea, to say the least, and uh, that didn't work out. That had a uh, you know a messy ending, uh, and Rabbi Chaim Zev went back to Palestine, where he only met, decades later became the Mashgiach in the year nineteen fifty-four. So the compromise candidate was uh, Rabbi Chatzka Levenstein, who had previously been in the mayor, um, both. In an informal position, and even earlier, when Ibrahim was uh, stuck after World War One across the border, so Rabchatzkel had even served in, 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 as an official role as the Mashkiach in Yeshiva, so it was kind of like bringing him back to where he had previously been. So that seemed like a fair compromise. He had moved to; he had also moved to to, to the land of Israel, to Palestine. He had become the Mashkiach in the Lamji Yeshiva in Petach Tikva, and now he was re- recalled from there to fill uh, Rabbi Rucham Lovavitz's uh, position as the Mashgiach and the Mir, as, uh, as a compromise candidate for, as a, for temporarily. He was called in officially for five years. Of course, five years later, it was 1941, 
they're on their way to Shanghai, and the rest is history. So Reb stayed with the yeshiva throughout the Shanghai years, and then in the United States, and then in their initial years in Israel, and he only moved on to the Panavish yeshiva almost uh, approximately 18 years after he had originally come, um, and uh, and he moved on to Panavish, where he remained for the rest of his long life. That was Rebchatzka Levenstein. Either way, it was complicated because everyone felt this closeness to Rabbi Rucham, and anyone who would come in, you know, is trying to replace someone who was seen by his students as irreplaceable. So it was, uh, it was, it was, you know, it was always a tense situation. Um, in fact, when when Rebbe passed away, he passed away without children. So you know, it was Rebbe was 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 concerned that perhaps it was a kapeda. It was. It was some sort of uh, issue of, of feelings that had been that had been hurt in the process of him being the mashkiach there. So Reb Chatzke Levenstein attended Reb Leib Malin's Levaya, and he cried out, "Ginuk kepeda! It's enough! It's enough! Everything is forgiven. There's no reason for people to pass away without children." So tragically, at a young age, um, you know, they had a mutual respect for each other, and it was never something personal. Um, Rebbe Malin was eventually buried right near his Rebbe, the Briskarov, Rebbe Velvola in the then relatively new Chelkas uh, Harabanim and Haramanuchas, where he is today. He's two, two, um, two kvarim near, near, off from the Briskarov. He had a very close relationship with the Briskarov. He had studied there while he was at the Mir Yeshiva. He went on for a few years to be by the Rav, who loved him, and they were very close. Um, and then... Uh, and then the war comes. So they're they, the beginning of the war. They uh, the the Mir Yeshiva is trying to escape from the Soviets. Right, the Molotov on Ribbentrop Pact has the secret clause, which is only discovered at Nuremberg, but it was uh, agreed upon by by Molotov and 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 Joachim von Ribbentrop, the two foreign ministers of of, of Stalinist uh, Soviet Union and and Nazi Germany, on August twenty third, nineteen thirty nine, a week before. The commencement of hostilities, uh, which which was the beginning of World War Two, the invasion of Poland. So they had this clause about dividing Poland. So on September seventeenth, Eastern Poland is invaded by the Red Army, and um, Eastern Poland is where all the Lithuanian-style yeshivas were. So communist atheists they didn't uh, allow these rabbinical Torah institutions to operate. Um, and therefore they were escaping from the Soviets, they escaped to neutral Lithuania, and and that was um, and that was a temporary solution because the Soviet Union eventually extended its uh, uh, occupation of Eastern Europe to the Baltic states, and, and, and Lithuania is incorporated into the Soviet Union in the summer of 1940. So there's this idea that perhaps they should leave the Soviet Union. Now, no one guessed that Barbarossa... The Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union, no one guessed that it's coming in June 1941. So there's no escaping the Nazis. This is not Nazi-occupied Europe. Um, this is Soviet-occupied Eastern Europe. And uh, and they're leaving the Soviets. They're trying to get away from the Soviets. And the idea that you could get visas was only possible at this time under the Soviets. You couldn't get visas if you were a Nazi-occupied country. There were no consulates in in Nazi-occupied countries. You couldn't escape the Nazis that way. Once Barbarossa started, in other words, once the Nazis invaded the Soviet Union, there was mass shootings of Jews right away. 
um, in, in, in mass graves outside uh, of the towns. So there was no escaping the Nazis by, uh, by getting visas. They were escaping the Soviets a year before the Nazi invasion, and unless they had prophecy, they did not know that the Nazi invasion would come a year later. So they're strictly dealing with the Soviet threat. And the consensus, again, among the leading rabbis of the day, Reb Chaim Grzynski, and many others on the yeshiva world, or Baron Cutler and many others, were not to not to get visas to escape the Soviet Union because uh, that would entail requesting Soviet exit visas. And so requesting a Soviet exit visa was very dangerous because if you dared ask to leave the Soviet Union, and how can you leave the Soviet workers' paradise? That's, uh, that's counter-revolutionary, that's Trotskyism, that's uh, God knows what else in Stalinist uh, Soviet Union they could come up with. And therefore, it's uh, it's dangerous. And again, pre-Barbarossa, before the Nazis implement the final solution, which no one anticipated, the worst thing in the world was being sent to Siberia. Of course, we know that once once the final solution is implemented, so the Siberia is of course is one of the safest places on the planet, uh, relatively. So, uh, so, so so Siberia would have been wonderful, relatively. So, but they didn't know that at the time, right? So they, so Siberia is pretty scary, pretty dangerous. So therefore, why ask for a Soviet exit visa? Let's try to survive under the Soviets. Let's try to keep the yeshivas maintained under the Soviets, and 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 let's hunker down and, and survive. That was the consensus, and that's what the rabbis all advised. So it was pretty courageous of Rebbe Malin to be able to go against that consensus and advise the Mir Yeshiva together as a unit to go request these visas, which included the famous Sugihara visas of, of uh, to Japan, which ultimately led them to Shanghai. In fact, yesterday, New Year's, January 1st, was uh, Sugihara's birthday, his 122nd birthday. So if he would still be alive, he'd be 122. He died, I don't know, 30, 40 years ago, but it's significant that it's his birthday and Rebbe yard site. <laughs> It's kind of coincide. Either way, so um, Sir Ablaib had this major role in guiding the yeshiva through this and taking a leadership position. When they're in Shanghai, so um, so I, I once asked a, an Altamir, I said to him, you know, we grew up with these legends about the, mir, the study, the diligence of the mere students uh, studying Torah all day and night in Shanghai, and everyone knew the entirety of Shas by heart because the study in Shanghai was incomparable to anything the Jewish people has ever seen throughout its history. I wanted to know, is that true? That's that's kind of the stories that we grew up on. I asked him, you were in Shanghai, tell me if it's true. So he was a, a little bit dismissive. He said, eh, um, you know who knew, who knew Shas? Rebbe Malin knew Shas in its entirety. He said, I never fired anyone, I never tested anyone, so it could be there were others, but I'm not sure about anyone else. Rebbe Malin Everyone knew that he was a you know a head and shoulders above everyone. He knew Shas. Um, so the there was a lot of refugees in Shanghai. There were thousands of refugees from all over, from Austria, from Germany, from Poland, religious, secular, Hasidic, yeshiva students, all types. Um, Mir the Mir Yeshiva had very little to do, if not nothing, to do with the other refugees in the mainstream community. Yet there were several marriages of Mir students that did take place. But that's a story for another time. He comes to the, um, the the United States after the war, 
And he, Reb Leib Malin, starts the yeshiva, founds the yeshiva Beis HaTalmud, together with Reb Chaim Vesaker, his close friend, and the student of Reb Rucham Lovavitz, of course, and a group, another, a whole chabura, a whole group of senior students of Reb Rucham. And the primary reason was that they wanted their independence. They had been financially supported by the heroic efforts of Reb Avram Kalmanovich, who had supported them throughout the war years and then brought them over to the United States. But um, at some point, they wanted, you know, their, their own independence. They wanted to do their own thing. Reb Kalmanovich was doing things his way. And they felt that uh, their style, they, they, you know, was Reb Kalmanovich wasn't their role model. Their role model was Reb Rucham Levavitz and the Mir and Kelm before that. Um, so they, they wanted to start their own institution. They did not rejoin the Mir in, in Israel with Rebbe Finkel because they had no interest in going to Israel. They wanted to stay in the United States. So they had to come up with another option. And what they did was they opened a, what was it, then a koil uh, for select Altamiris. It was a small 11, 12 uh, Altamiris students, mostly unmarried, and it was not originally intended to be yeshiva. Um, eventually, it evolved into yeshiva. Started off in East New York. It moves to Bensonhurst in 1962. Um, the neighborhood went bad. It was kind of dangerous, so they had to leave. But they were in East New York for those early years, and it was the only Jewish neighborhood in Brooklyn that welcomed the yeshiva. They had elderly Jewish women who were immigrants who were willing to host the yeshiva students in their home. The Altamiras, like Reb Chaim Vesaker, they boarded by locals. It was like a stancia, like they had in the Mir in Poland. They had a stancia, a room in someone's home. They, they, you know, these older men, they were respected. Tell me the Chacham, they're not going to go to a dormitory, obviously. So they lived in, they boarded in people's homes. Reb Chaim Vesaker, Reb Lezer Harajeski, Reb Shmuel Kharkover, people, people like that. Um, Reb Leib Malin had gotten married already, as was some of the other founders, Reb Tzal Tannenbaum, Reb Leib Shachar, Reb Leib Kopenya, a lot of the Altamirs of Beis Talmud were already married. He, shortly before his um, founding of Beis Talmud, he authored an article in a journal that he himself published to disseminate Torah and Musr. He called it Hatvuna, and uh, he published it anonymously, but he was the one who published it, and he was the one who wrote this introduction, and it's a landmark article. It's a historic article. This is considered the article of uh, understanding Rebleib and his world and his view, his value system. It's an important one if you ever have a chance to, to read it. It's available on probably on Hebrew books too, I imagine. Um, and, the, and, and it's based on this philosophy that he founded uh, a base of Talmud. I want to explore a little bit using his the text of the Hatun article, but more to see it in a broader context. I want to explore Ablaib's rebuilding of the yeshiva world post-war activities, especially his philosophy behind it, in a much broader context. I hope I'm not taking it too far, but I truly believe that he was a visionary who saw the big picture and that his impact was way beyond the walls of his own small, modest yeshiva of Beis Talmud. This, of course, does not mean to say that he was the only one who saw things this way. Presumably, the other great builders of the Lithuanian Torah world, such as Rabaran Kotler, the Panavizhirovri Beis of Shalemi and others, other great builders and visionaries, had similar aspirations and value systems. But this is in the context of this episode on Rebleib Malin, who will be focusing on his role and impact. So I want to take several steps back to get a much broader context and then get back to Rebleib. 
In the post-war, the world of rebuilding in both Israel and the United States, there are two points to consider. Number one, that the Jewish, the religious, for sure, society was very, very urban, became super, ultra-urban. Um, the second point is that there was no longer, almost non-existent, the concept of a kehila, of the kahal, of what had existed in Europe uh, pre-war, of very structured Jewish communities. There was no government recognition, for sure not in a place like the United States, where there's no such thing as the government recognition of an autonomous religious entity as a community, um, completely and antithetical to the values of, of, of American society, as opposed to Europe, which, even until today, European Jewish communities are structured on that, uh, but for sure pre-war. Um, so religious communal identity in the United States was completely, is, and was completely voluntary-based. Not, uh, no requirements. Based on these two points, many visionaries saw institution building within very specific parameters, very specific frameworks, as a way to salvage the Jewish community and preserve it in these new conditions. And only belonging to a specific type of religious institution would maintain Jewish continuity. And I'll give an example from totally the other end of the spectrum. Very interesting byproduct of this phenomenon is the rise in synagogue membership with the move to the suburbs during the 1950s. And the type of synagogues we're talking about is reform and conservative temples, obviously, in the suburbs. 1950s, there are no Orthodox synagogues. Um, yet still, while, while the immigrant Jews, the first and second generation, lived in Brownsville or the Bronx, they were not members, primarily they were, they were not members of synagogues, for the overwhelming majority. Because you were Jewish enough without that in New York City. You, your Jewish existence was, was permeating the atmosphere of the Jewish neighborhoods of, of Brooklyn, Bronx, and, and the Lower East Side. The language, the Yiddish newspapers, the Yiddish culture, the street life, the shops, the, you know, it, it just was there. In the suburbs, you needed something else if Jewish identity was important. Of course, assimilation was rampant also, so obviously it wasn't important to everyone. But paradoxically, the next generation, which is supposed to have been more assimilated and less Jewish with the move to the suburbs in the 1950s, they actually, many of them, become more affiliated because all of a sudden they're looking to synagogue membership and even synagogue attendance, albeit reform and conservative, right? So, you know, that's a different different type of affiliation, but it is a somewhat, you know, can, can be a considered a religious affiliation. So that's an interesting byproduct of this phenomenon. That being said, we now return to the refugee segment of the Jewish population, and specifically the traditional elements thereof. And if we cite some of the great Hasidic leaders as examples, Skver, Lubavitch, Babov, Satmer, many others, Gleisenberg, many others, the courts they established in New York were attempts to create a kahila framework with full institutional infrastructure to enable rebuilding in this urban uh, an urban society and within the liberal uh, uh, environment of the separation of church and, st- church and state setting. This required a unique vision on one hand, as this was unlike anything they had known in Europe. The Kehillah model had always, been, had, had always had government recognition, though in the last generations prior to the war, the Kehillah system was severely weakened and urbanization was already in full force. But either way, Hasidic courts were in a certain way uniquely suited for this purpose because they had always been a community to a certain extent, which was not limited by geographical borders. 
And it has been noted by many historians of the Hasidic movement that with the weakening of the Kahal over the course of the 19th and 20th centuries, the Hasidic court and its institutions begin to fill an ever-increasing role in what had previously been the purview of the Kahal. However, the non-Hasidic world never had that luxury. So in Germany and Hungary, the Kehillah model existed right up to the war, and there were even attempts of rebuilding that Kehillah model in the post-war in several locations around the world, which is an interesting story which we can explore another time. However, the Lithuanian Torah world never even made such an attempt. So a new alternative Kehillah model was sought to serve as a paradigm, as an all-encompassing institution, literally taking what had been until this point an educational institution and transforming it into a lifelong identity. And this was, of course, the role that the yeshiva was supposed to play. The yeshiva, until this point, until shortly before the war, let's say, because the process had already begun pre-war, the yeshiva had been a place of Torah education. It was an educational institution. Now, it was to serve as a communal institution, a communal identity. This process had already commenced prior to the war, and we see this in the leadership and the vision, for instance, of the Aldov Slobodka, the Chavetz Chaim, and even to a certain extent in the activities of the Vada Yeshiva, of Reb Chaim Grudensky, even though it was primarily um, for fundraising. But that's another story. In the post-war rebuilding efforts, it became a crucial part of the process. And judging from our contemporary world, it seems to have been successful both in Israel and the United States. So, that is all the context. Having said all that background, I can now return to the story of Reb Leib Malin. He, perhaps more than any other, saw what he termed the Tzuras HaYeshiva, the form of the Yeshiva, for what he envisioned to be it to be, and that it needed to be maintained as the lifeline for the survival of the Jewish people. The Yeshiva affiliation, in his mind, was total and everlasting. The essence of the Yeshiva became the essence of one's identity. This and I'm going to bring a quote, which I translated for the Mishpacha Magazine article, and I come, and it comes from the Hatavuna article that Reb Leib wrote, really says it all. The pre, in the pre-war, the Mir Yeshiva had a group of alumni in, in Lodz, a major industrial city in Poland. They were laymen who formed the Chabura as Mir alumni, and they maintained contact with their Rebbe from the Mir, the great Mashkir, Reb Yuchem Lovavitz. Reb Yuchem wrote them a letter, uh, and it was shortly before his passing, and really expressed Rabbi Rucham's worldview. So Rabbi Leib and other senior students of Rabbi Rucham came to see this letter as something of a will and testament of Rabbi Rucham. So this is the quote that I want to, you know, use. Who more than you is familiar with what the Tsuras HaYeshiva is to be? To dwell in the depths of study, you are all students of our holy yeshiva, and I see that aside from the vast amounts of Torah you've received from the yeshiva, which is an an external accomplishment, you've come to understand and internalize the essence and the spirit of what the Holy Yeshiva is. To that effect, you've established a Chabura, which is to continue the legacy of the Yeshiva spirit. You've taken it with you wherever you go to be constantly with the Yeshiva and within the walls of the Yeshiva. In addition, you can have an impact on those who have never gazed upon the walls of the Yeshiva. Through their connection to you, they will also be considered Talmidim of the Holy Yeshiva. Through this merit, you will always be considered students of the Holy Yeshiva for eternity. End quote. So this was understood to mean that the Yeshiva was no longer to be seen as limited to Torah education, as was the case, let's say, in Valajan Yeshiva. What Rabbi Yochum is referring to is that he refers to the vast amounts of Torah study as an external accomplishment. And the primary focus is on what they internalize as on the 
essence and spirit of what the holy yeshiva is. That essence and spirit is to be taken with wherever you go, to be constantly within the walls of yeshiva for eternity. Now this is nothing short of revolutionary, and a barometer of its, of its success is the fact that this idea is completely taken for granted today in large swaths of the, of the yeshiva community in both Israel and the United States. So Reb Leib carried that vision, and, uh, and that's what he tried to build with Beis Talmud. So what we have left here is many, many stories uh, which did not make it into the magazine article. Uh, there's many stories that, that just didn't have room. We didn't have room for a huge collection, plus some other uh, facets of his life, especially the early years and his years in Shanghai and the escape, the role that he played there. So that we'll have to save for a part two. Um, there's always room for a part two. If you'd like to sponsor that, then please be in touch with me. There's so much more to say about this great man. Um, but this was part one about Rebbe Malin. This is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. Um, you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform, and I hope you enjoy.